Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What's up, guys? Really grateful you guys are listening to the pod. I would love it if you could take just five seconds to leave a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you might be listening to this. It really goes a long way to spread the message, which would allow me to get better guests to add more value to your life. And if you're one of the special people that have helped spread the word on this podcast, I am deeply appreciative of your support. Enjoy the episode. Hola amigos, do you ever wish you could speak Spanish with confidence but constantly feel intimidated or nervous when you speak it? Then let me introduce you to JumpSpeak. JumpSpeak is an AI-powered language app that we developed using an active immersion method to help you speak Spanish like a native speaker faster. Here's how it works. You choose from over a thousand conversation lessons where you'll role play fun, real-life scenarios from going on a first date to asking for directions when you're traveling. You'll start speaking on day one with our AI chatbots and get real-time speech feedback while mastering your listening skills. Best of all, you can make all the mistakes you want without ever feeling judged or embarrassed. So say adios to awkward silences or boring traditional methods. You'll be traveling freely to your next Spanish-speaking destination in no time. Go to jumpspeak.com slash growth today and you can try it risk-free for a hundred days and it turns out as i got deeper and deeper into the research most of the assumptions that people assume to be correct are actually false humans to actually slow down cellular aging so coffee makes it possible for you to stay youthful longer at the cellular level the results was so amazing it was like pulling the cloak off the statue of David for the first time. For the first time, we actually were able to see what human metabolism is truly like if you remove the effect of excess body fat. Dr. William Lee, thanks so much for coming on to the show. Thanks, Sean. It's a pleasure. Yeah, and uh, it just as we spoke before, congrats again on hitting the New York Times bestseller. I think I can say this now since it's already a proven fact. Sometimes guests come on before, way before the books even launch, but confidently we can say that uh, there's a proven certificate of a New York Times bestseller. So congrats once again, two in a row. Thanks. Yeah, no, thanks very much. It, uh, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, um, the, the real reward for uh, any author is really seeing how well a book is received. I'm sure it's true if you're um, you know an actor creating a film or a producer, you never really know until the end. Uh, and uh, this has been a well-received book, so I'm, I'm very happy. Well, first, we should share the book. So the first book you wrote was Eat to Beat Disease. And yeah. that was, again, uh, what, what year did you write that? Or was that out? That was uh, 2018 that it came out. So four years ago. Okay, four years ago. Uh, and then now this one is Eat to Beat 
diet. Uh, again, an another New York Times bestseller. So I'm curious to know what was the reception? Was there any different reception that you've gotten from readers from this book versus the one four years ago? You know, so um, my first book was really entering my entry into the sort of book writing space for the public. And what I was writing about is food as medicine. But, you know, a lot of people who write in that area or focus on that area uh, spend a lot of time focusing on food. And for me, because I'm a scientist and I'm also a physician, a doctor, um, I wanted to focus on how the body responds to how, what you put inside it. And that really, um, I find a really helpful way to understanding why certain foods are not so good for you, while other foods are really great for you. Now, I focus on what you can add to your body that is good for your health, that can actually elevate your health. And so my first book was, you know, how do you elevate your health specifically by uh, helping you raise your shields against disease? So these are your body's health defense systems. There's five of them. These are all areas of my research, your circulation, uh, your stem cells for regeneration, your gut health, your gut microbiome, your DNA, and your immunity. And what was uh, uh, really fun to write about my first book is these five health defense systems, most people don't know that much about. Even gut health four years ago was uh, sort of a more of a, of a stretch for people. Now people have heard more about it, but I, I wrote it from the perspective of somebody who does the actual research and tried to explain, look, if this is actually, um, these systems are responsible for our health. Why not actually amplify their task? And you can do this uh, really by eating lots of delicious food. So in my first book, I wrote about more than 200 foods that will uh, light up your health defenses. So think about, you know, raise your shields. Now, there are lots of people who spend their time thinking about what, or criticizing foods or sort of brand bashing. I don't do that because I think there's so many people already. There's so many voices out there that point out um, things that I feel are pretty obvious, you know, ultra processed foods and too much alcohol and too much added sugars. And so I, what I sort of try to do is to figure out what can I contribute that's new and appealing and also crowd pleasing because people want to know what they can do rather than actually what they shouldn't do, right? You, want, you always want to get permission from the teacher to go do something that maybe didn't think you were able to do rather than, you know, get told what you, wh where you can't go in the school. So for me, that was my first book. Um, and, and as a first book, I, I had no idea how well it'd be received. And, and uh, you know, again, I hit the New York Times bestseller list. It was uh, awesome. It was like number one on all of Amazon, which I can't remember how many books were totally on Amazon uh, four years ago. But today I also hit, my new book also hit number one on all of Amazon. I, I you know, that's, that's like, number one of 33 million books. So, you know, it's a, it's a pretty steep road to climb, especially sort of when you launch it within a few days. So um, my second book, by the way, is a sequel. So in the same way that Empire Strikes Back is a sequel to Star Wars or Godfather Part II is a sequel to Godfather Part One, I literally tried to figure out like, where do I take the characters of your health defense from the first movie that everyone loved, first story that everyone loved, how do you take them into a sequel? And you know, what is the 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 opponent, the enemy that's that uh, that they're facing, the opposition? It's even greater in the sequel, right? So those are some of the elements of actually writing a good sequel <clears throat> is a storytelling part. So for me, my research has gone from simply health defenses, which it's a big it's a big area to work on, <clears throat> but 
it's actually evolved into looking at metabolism because all of our body's health defense systems, all of our shields contribute to giving us a good metabolism. And metabolism, as it turns out from my research, is something that a lot of us, myself included, have a, had a lot of assumptions, have a lot of assumptions about. And it turns out, as I got deeper and deeper into the research, most of the assumptions that people assume to be correct are actually false. And so what I do in my second book is really um, take a sledgehammer, the sledgehammer of science and myth bust and just bash you know, like all the things that we think are true. You know, people are like, oh, we're born with a faster or slow metabolism. That's why some of us have to struggle with food and weight and others don't. Is that right? All right. That's what most people, a lot of people think that. Can we go totally through some false. of these actually? Some of the most popular oh. misconceptions that people have yeah. about this? Yeah. Well, so, so my second book is really, by the way, so my second book is titled Eat to Beat Your Diet. But it's actually a trick title because it's not a diet book. It's an anti-diet book. And the whole point is talking about sharing with the reader what is the new science of the metabolism telling us about our bodies that we didn't know before that actually is good news, not bad news, right? Because when it comes to metabolism, normally we associate it with weight gain and body fat and deprivation. And now, now I got to go on a diet and I can't eat. So what I wanted to do is turn all up and all of that and turn on its head and basically say, all right, what are we learning that can turn the false facts about metabolism into truths? And then how do we use that information to be able to rediscover the joy of eating again so we don't have to fear our food? So I can jump in anywhere you want to go uh, to start off. Yeah, we can start with the idea that people have this misconception of thinking they have a fast metabolism or slow metabolism. I'm generally on the opposite end where I definitely, I've grown up having a fast metabolism. So I'm trying to gain weight. And for me, this psychological barrier of, of having a very difficult time is something I'm struggling with. I would imagine most people have the problem of slow metabolism of weight gain. And um, it seems like what you're saying is that's not necessarily true. So can you elaborate yeah. a little bit more on that? Well, well, first of all, let's just talk about what metabolism is, because if you go onto the internet and search uh, the, the definition, they'll actually give you the medical, the scientific textbook, the, def the definition of metabolism, which is pretty complicated. It's the net sum of chemical reactions, blah, blah, blah. And most people are not scientists like me, or maybe most people don't have a science background to even put that into context. But I have a very... I have a much simpler way that I think everyone can get behind um, and, and relate to. Metabolism is simply put how our body takes the energy from the food that we eat and uses it to power the, uh, the engine of our body to go do whatever it is that we want to or need to actually do. It's very similar to um, if you drive a car that uses, you know, the, the gas, gasoline, petrol, um, you know, you're sitting in a car you know you've got an engine, you know you've got fuel, you've got gasoline, but you don't think about the process of how that car gets uh, the, get the fuel from the fuel tank over to the engine to power it, right? The only time you think about that process is when you look at the gas gauge and your fuel is running low, and then what are you gonna do? You're gonna pull over to the filling station, take the nozzle, put it into the gas tank, fill it right up, and then put it back and then drive off. And that's the only time you really think about your fuel, right? Now. Uh, that's really how, how how our body works as well. Our body has an engine. It runs off. It needs fuel. Now, we don't get our fuel from a pump. We get it from food. So, uh, and we don't actually have a visible gauge, you know, uh, uh, in our, on our 
body's dashboard that we can stare at and it goes towards Eve for empty. Um, but we do actually have sensors inside our body that tell us, you know what, our fuel's running low. Time to do something, fill up the tank. Our body's fuel is low. We do pull over, but we don't pull over to the filling station. We pull over to the dinner table or the pantry or the refrigerator or go to a restaurant to go eat something, right? So that's really simply put the kind of the system of energy and how we actually perform with it. And then the details get really interesting. So um, uh, uh, let's talk about this whole myth, though, about fast or slow metabolism, because, you know, um, many people start off thinking about fast or slow metabolism as adults at some level of adulthood, right? So if you're uh, lean and slim, you know, like somebody might have told you, man, you need to gain some weight. You're real. You're, you're real skinny. You know, you should work on that. Eat some more. Right. And if, and if on the other hand of the spectrum, if you're actually somebody who uh, has a larger body size and you might be overweight or you might even be obese, you know, just by looking in the mirror, like every single day, you're thinking, oh, man, I got to lose some of this weight. Right. So this is where we start as adults thinking about body fat and weight and weight gain. Usually it's societal, it's environmental. Somebody has actually put that frame, put, put those Google glasses on us to, to, to teach us what we should be thinking about. But it turns out, that, it, that that's not true. Our metabolism is really a hardwired system that we're born with, and it's like an operating system in your laptop. So if you, Sean, and I went out to our respective computer stores from wherever we are right now and bought the same model of computer, all right? Uh, we took it out of the box, plugged it in the wall, booted it up, and, and started uh, uh, working on it. The operating system that's in that laptop would work exactly the same way. Out of the box, your laptop and my laptop is hardwired to work exactly the same way. And that is exactly the case with our metabolism. It makes sense, right? Because think about it. All humans are born. The kidneys work mostly the same way. They make pee. The heart pumps works mostly the same way to keep us alive. Our brains mostly work the same way. Eyes, nose, ears, largely the same way, or lungs. Why wouldn't our metabolism be born really as an operating system program to work in largely the same way. So that's really the first truism that overturns what a lot of people think, like it's their genetics, it's their parents' fault. No, this is actually out of the box or hardwiring. So the reason that that's empowering is because it means that we have all the, we all have the ability to be able to uh, take actions that allow us to tap into that inner operating system. So that's one of the myths uh, that that uh, was out there. And I'll tell you basically, by the way, how we figured this out. This is based on research that's less than two years old. All right. 2001, August, when, when the, this research study was published that upended and changed everything that we thought we knew about human metabolism. So there's a researcher named Herman Ponzer, who's, a, who's out of Duke. OK, um, and uh, and he got together with 90 research colleagues, 90, it's a big research study from 20 different countries around the world, from every continent. And they studied 6,000 people to look at their metabolism and they studied them exactly the same way. Here's what they did. They gave them all a drink of water, okay? And the water, which is H2O, right? I mean, everyone knows that, that it water is H2O. H is hydrogen, O is oxygen. What the researchers were able to do, they were able to tweak the hydrogen and tweak the oxygen, tweak the H and tweak the O. So when you drank the water, your metabolism worked on those atoms and you can measure what the metabolism from your breath, from a blood test and also from your urine, because you can see what it did to the atoms. 
All right. So that's basically how this research was done. But the most amazing thing is who they studied in these 6,000 people from 20 countries, because they studied people that were two days old, newborns, all the way to people who were 90 plus years old. So they studied the entire human lifespan to figure out what their metabolism is. Now, here's what's interesting. They, when they first looked at the results, what they found was the metabolism was all over the map. Everyone had a different metabolism, just like you would have thought, okay? However, we now live in a computational age where we can actually write, write software, write code to crunch huge amounts of data and, and sort of adjust to have a deeper analysis of data. So what they actually did in this particular research study is they applied an algorithm to the results of every single person of the 6,000 uh, uh, person study, and they were able to correct in each person's metabolism result, they were able to remove the effect on the metabolism of excess body fat. So they knew how big these people were, how tall they were, how uh, heavy they were, and they could adjust. They're like, oh, you know what, Sean, you're, you're a little under, okay? So we're going to adjust. And if you have a little over, we're going to adjust that. And we're going to actually find out if you kind of right size the amount of body fat within reason of what you're supposed to have, what your metabolism, your corrected metabolism should be. Okay. Now remember, I told you the initial results were all over the map, but when they applied this algorithm, okay, what they did, the results was so amazing. It was like pulling the cloak off the statue of David for the first time. For the first time, we actually were able to see what human metabolism is truly like if you remove the effect of excess body fat. I'm going to come back to that in a second, but here's, here's how it goes. All humans from birth to death, okay, if you get to your 90s, go through only four phases of metabolism, only four, all right? And they're the same four that every single person's operating system is hardwired to go through. This is a jaw dropper, okay? So here's the first phase from zero to one year old, your metabolism shoots off like a rocket. It's, it's in fact, it, it, it shoots to 50% higher than what your metabolism is going to be as an adult. So babies are very, very warm creatures, right? Okay. They might be sleeping a lot, but they're really warm and they're also full of energy when they're awake. All right. So that's the metabolism phase of stage one, phase one. Second phase is from age one to age 20, cutting right through teenage years, right? Now it turns out when you look at a teenager, Teenagers are eating two dinners, three dinners, they're bouncing off the wall, full of energy, and they're sprouting up. They're getting taller and taller and taller, right? Or bigger and bigger if they're actually working out, okay? And so you would assume, given the amount of energy they have, their metabolism must be going through the roof, right? Wrong. It turns out that during teenage years, adolescence, metabolism in the second phase is going down, 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 down to adult levels, all right? And then phase three is the mic drop moment, okay? They found from 20 years old, so remember zero to one, it's very phase one, one to 20 is phase two, phase three is 20 to 60. And here is the big surprise. From 20 to 60, the operating system of your metabolism is designed to be rock stable. It's not designed to change. It doesn't automatically decrease when you hit middle age. That's what everybody assumes. When you get your 40s or 50s, your shape is going to change. You're going to gain weight. You're going to have problems with body fat. That's what every single middle-aged person 
dreads and struggles with both physically and, and emotionally. Okay. And it leads to all kinds of uh, behavior changes um, uh, for, for that as well. It turns out that if you follow your metabolism, uh, 20 and 60 is supposed to be the same. And what that means is that 60 can be the new 20 if you follow your metabolism. Now, obviously, people wind up having trouble with weight and their shape changes when they're uh, going between 20 and 60. And I'm going to explain that in one second. All right. But then that's the third phase, a big surprise. Fourth phase of human metabolism from 60 to 90. Okay. Your metabolism does change, go, does go down a little bit, only 17% between 60 and 90 years old. That means that if you're lucky enough to live to 90, your metabolism is going to be less than 20% down from what it was when it, you were 60 or 20. All right. That there's like, there's, so if you think about that, uh, Sean, just how profound that revelation actually is, it actually means that it, this is how we're hardwired out of the box. This is how we're going to perform. And one of the interesting things, if you if you were sort of carefully paying attention to that algorithm I talked about, this these four patterns, the operating system was revealed when you remove the effect of excess body fat. What this means is when you throw the effect of excess body fat back into the system, guess what happens? You suppress your metabolism. So. Here's another myth. One of the myths is that if you have a slow metabolism, it causes you to gain fat and gain weight. Wrong. It's that gaining fat and gaining weight slows your metabolism. It's completely the opposite. So I'm going to just pause there for a second because like, it is so mind-boggling to think that we had made these assumptions, like myself as well. I'm a, you know, I went to medical school. Yeah. This is what we were taught, and it just ain't true. Yeah, so that, that that's a lot of information that uh, that you just brought it out there. Um, where do I start? Okay, so first off, was this the first study done around the myths of what metabolism? There must have been studies before this. So, were this was this study basically refuting these studies from before because perhaps the other ones didn't have as much data? or they didn't have the advancement of science. And this recent study proves this refutes the other studies that have been done around metabolism? Yes, and more. It's mm. not so much a, a refutation. The study wasn't done to prove or disprove. It was really an observational, like, let's see what happens. Let's, what, the, the purpose of the study was to define human metabolism over the course of a lifetime. That really hadn't been done before. Okay. And it, what, what they wanted to do that made this unique is capture newborns all the way to the very tail end of life, 90 plus years old. The other thing they wanted to do was to throw all humans into the hopper. Okay. They had people from Africa, from Australia, from Asia, from Europe, from the North America, uh, you know, South America. They threw everybody in because, you know, <clears throat> every population has their own, uh, genetics, they have their own foods, they have their own lifetime, lifestyles, you know, all these other factors that historically, like if you only study a small group of people in Rio de Janeiro, uh, you know, those results, you could say, well, yeah, okay, maybe that's true for a small group of people in Rio, but, uh, you know, I live in Sydney, Australia, or wherever you're going to live, you might say, well, that, how does that apply to me? This was really designed to say, let's throw everyone into the hopper and see what happens over the course of a lifetime. And the other thing that was unique about the study is they all studied everybody the same way from the newborn 
to the elderly person. And most studies, you know, they can put patch together small segments of populations. You know, oh, we're studying people from 12 to 15 years old, or studying people from 45 to 65. This is the entire gamut done exactly the same way. So it's one of those rare research studies that uh, required global collaboration. And then, of course, the, techno the technology today was actually able to bring us insights that we didn't have before. And that's that algorithm that crunched the data. I mean, you know, like today, if we had this uh, study today, we'd actually use, you know, ChatGPT to go back in there and train it to mine even more information. Sure. So are you saying that from a genetics perspective, all of us have the same metabolism roughly and the majority of what determines our weight and the fat that we gain is from external stimuli like foods we eat, the environment that we grew up in. It's not the genetics that we've gotten from our parents, our great grandparents, and we're all roughly equal the same. That, that's right. That's how we start out of the box, just like the laptop. Wow. Okay. Now, and it's profound, right? If you really think about that. So we all have the same shot on goal, basically coming out of the box when we, you know, um, uh, uh, take our first breath of air out of, huh. out of the womb. Now, genetics can, I mean, I want to be really fair about this because I'm a physician. There are genetic uh, uh, conditions that are called errors of metabolism that are rare severe and actually most people with these don't survive past childhood and so i don't want to make it sound like there aren't genetic uh conditions that can actually severely warp your metabolism uh in in ser serious ways but for the most part people are actually born the same way now we know uh this you know that among the factors you call them external factors yes absolutely but there's also internal factors that can be affected by external factors. So for example, our circulation, one of our health defense systems. I study the, I'm, I'm a, you know, I work in the field of angiogenesis, angio blood, blood vessel, genesis, how our blood vessel grows, that's our circulation. It turns out these are the highways and byways that deliver oxygen and nutrients and the fuel that we use to power our metabolism to every single organ in the body. If your blood vessels are healthy, you're going to be healthy. If your blood vessels are sick, your metabolism isn't going to do so well. So things that you can, that can affect your metabolism can are, are things that might start with having a problem with your circulation. Now, what are the things that, that can mess up your circulation? Well, we know some of the easy ones, right? Smoking. It damages the lining of the blood vessels, causes hardening of the arteries, you know, um, uh, too much salt, hypertension uh, over the course of. So you can kind of see some external factors damage the internal factors, which then um, uh, impact on that operating system. Mm. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. So like I, I grew up in high school and, and, you know, there would always be and I, I was certainly one of them, but there, there was certainly this outlier of, of kids where. They would be eating junk food all day. They would be, you know, smoking and, you know, kids were there 15. They would work out once in a while, but would still have like a six pack. And I would remember having conversations with friends of mine where even if they were eating healthy and their parents were making them healthy food, they were still gaining weight. So how do you explain from those ages of people that have incredibly different diets if we are still born with relatively similar metabolisms, the differences of what impacts 
their weights when they're eating such vastly different diets. Yeah, because the the effect of the kind of lifestyle you're talking about that often teenagers have isn't going to be necessarily seen because our uh, in in the in the span of three years of, mm. of high school, for example. You know, those guys with the six packs that were smoking and, and eating crappy food, it'd be interesting to see what their metabolism is like today and what their body fat levels are like today. And so, again, oh, you know, there's this cumulative effect that can occur. Like, you know, the operating system is pretty, pretty powerful. Like it, it actually wants to actually stay on track as much as it can. But if you keep on damaging it by feeding it salt and added sugar and ultra processed foods, Put too much alcohol on it. Add some add some cigarette smoke, you know, uh, 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 and then you want to sort of pile on top of that. You know, the the things that can really damage your metabolism. Don't exercise. Be a couch potato. Uh, be stressed out all the time. It might be job. It might be relationship. It might be the climate. Whatever is stressing you out, my family. Whatever whatever it is that's stressing you out, add that to the mix. All right, and then disturb your sleep. Because during sleep, your metabolism and so many of your systems renew themselves and kind of charge and, and, and perform a particular function while you're sleeping. Mess up your sleep, have a lot of stress, don't exercise, eat crappy food. You know, a, a couple of years of that, you're, you're, especially when you're younger, you're not going to have a problem. Your you're, you're hardwiring, your operating system is going to actually get you through most of that. Do that for half a decade, a decade. And I guarantee you, it's like, remember, we're using this analogy of a car. You pull your car over to the filling station, all right, and you put the lowest quality fuel into the gas tank. Just pick the lowest one. All right, you fill it up. And, you know, it'll run fine for, for a couple of drives. Okay, now don't take care of the oil and the engine. All right, now don't get it serviced. Uh, uh, now don't, now, now leave it outdoors and don't let the body rust. And you can kind of see this is actually what happens to the operating system as good as it is, as well-constructed as it is. If we don't take care of our machine inside and out, eventually it's going to actually start to break down. So when you actually see these metabolism patterns, basically the, the, the separation of the curves start happening in adulthood because then we actually have a lifetime of habits that actually are starting to become manifest. But the other thing that happens during the middle age, right? So 20 to 60, Everyone knows that I mean, everyone knows someone, let's say, um, who's mid 45, 50, and they and suddenly their body shape starts to change. And so the explan the, the question, big question is, well, like what happened? Right. Well, one possible explanation is sort of this lifetime of of uh, of habits maybe catching up with you. And I think to some extent, and you know, we all grew up, you know, in the uh, late 20th century, which uh, uh Part of the legacy of that is actually living with a lot of artificial, industrialized, um, uh, you know, stuff. Both that we fed ourselves, we lived around, not necessarily so good for us. So, you know, when you take a look at this uh, epidemic of obesity that's happening, some of it is going to be the legacy of human innovation from the, you know, the mid 20th century onwards. We're living with, we're, you know, we're we're living with the battle scars of what we thought was actually super technology to make our lives better. Now, the second thing, though is that when we hit middle age, 40, 50, 40s and 50s, it also is the point where life happens, all right? So when, when I say life happens, I mean, you've got kids at 40 or 50, and now you're worried about how, how your kids are doing and when, what course they're taking and what, you know, their behavior, all right? Uh, what grades are going to, where the college are going to. And then you actually have, when you're 40, 50, you're at a level of employment where you might be worrying about your job. 
Is your job stable or not stable? You're worried about your economics. Oh, you got a house. Now you got a, like tuition payments and now you got a car payments. You know, oh man, like, and, and the economy is crappy. You're stressed out. You got relationship uh, uh, issues with your spouse, with your neighbors, you know, with your boss. All these things converge. And what it's what I call life happens. When you're stressed, you don't sleep well. When you don't sleep well, your brain accumulates toxins. I don't know if you know this, but when you get good quality REM sleep that where you're dreaming, Okay, that's good quality sleep. You should try to get eight hours of it every day if you can. There is a sewer system in our brains called the glymphatic system. These sewer systems, there's like the sewer systems of Paris. You don't see them. You know, you walk around the streets of Paris. It's a beautiful tourist city. Okay, but there's this enormous network. And the uh, sewers of Paris that are in our brains are closed during the day. And they open at night, 300 times larger than they were during the day. And they, wow. what they do is they drain the toxins that accumulated in our brain from the day before. You don't get a good night's sleep, the sewer system's not draining. You know what happens? That you're accumulating the toxins, which is why, by the way, that when you pull an all-nighter, like, I don't know if you did it in college or, you know, at a party or sure. traveling, you have jet lag, you always feel brain fog the next day, mm -hmm. all right? This is actually the toxins that you're dealing with. When you get those toxins in the brain, guarantee you, you are more likely to make a not so good choice when it comes to food. And you're probably mm. not going to be exercising or being as physically active as well. So you can kind of see in middle age, <clears throat> these convergent forces of life itself kind of conspire to actually um, uh, have us lead us towards behaviors that actually causes to gain body fat. And remember I told you in that experiment, it's adding body fat into the hardwiring slows down your metabolism. So you gain, you gain weight and then your metabolism slows. It's really just the opposite interpretation. So this is where the fallacy of people thinking that when they're entering their 30s or 40s, that their metabolism slows down and no matter what they do, that they're going to be gaining weights or not being healthy, that it, anything they do that they do basically is going to be in effect, like a much higher impact on the weight that they gain. And a lot of that is what you're saying is because, well, for most people, they have that body fat that's been accumulated and the stressors that's been through 30, 40 years versus someone that was 13 or 14, they haven't had all that time. So it's more resilient, would you say, in some ways, like the metabolism? Or is yeah, it just, it, it, yeah. I mean, I think that's resilience is part of it. And, and by the way, you know, <clears throat> the, the, the good news part of this, what we're talking about, is that you, it's, your metabolism, uh, you know, your body size and your body fat is not your genetic fate. We ha we're all out of the box with the same operating system. It's extra body fat that slows down our metabolism. So as a part of getting to your next level of health, no matter where you are, you can actually achieve a better metabolism by fighting extra harmful body fat. Now, how do you do this? You know, there are ways of, of choosing the right food. It's sort of like what you eat, how you eat, and when you eat are uh, on, within the food sector, which is what, what I write about in Eat to Beat Your Diet. Those things will allow your body to do all the heavy lifting for you, and you can make good choices where you're not depriving yourself. You're actually adding to your life from a food perspective. And I want to just sort of frame it right up front. Food is a critical part of it, but we can't forget physical activity, good sleep, 
and and finding a way to become let's say more adaptive uh, uh, with self care so we're managing stress levels are also important but you know a lot of people assign this idea of body fat and food and they kind of get caught in this um, vortex of extreme dieting uh, that that leads them only further down the path uh, uh, of of metabolic uh, uh, illness yeah can we just go actually rewind a little bit? One one of the things I'm really fascinated about is how our ancestors used to eat versus how our modern diet is based on. We actually had Dr. David Permalitter on, and one of his books has these two pie charts where he has a breakdown between carbs, protein, and fat of what our ancestors used to eat versus us. And our ancestors' diet, it claims, was around like 70 to 75% fat versus our current diets are somewhere around like 60% carbs. The majority of that, the fat and the carbs have just been swapped over and it's only like 20% of fat versus 75% of fat that's in our current diet. So we're talking a lot about excess fat, but what do you think um, is the, I guess, the impact of that in our health from this complete shift of fat that we've consumed from our ancestors versus carbs? Yeah, let's 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 address that directly. But I want to actually make one key point to anyone watching or listening to this. You eat fat, and there's energy in fat that actually will be metabolized. And you know, if you're eating fat, you're you'll eventually gain some fat as well. All right. If you eat carbs, carbs are basically sugar molecules that are stitched together, kind of like a like a like a um, like a rug. Okay, and your body metabolism breaks apart the sugars and digests it, uses it for energy as part of metabolism. And anything that's not immediately needed for your energy, your metabolism is going to take stuff from carbs and store it into fat. Okay. And so at the end of the day, there is a final common pathway. And this is actually just how the body actually works. So, um, you know, I, 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 I too have um, acknowledged and heard that, you know, the eating patterns of our ancestors are different than how we eat today. And, you know, I, I think that there's, it, it's a, it's a good point to make. I don't think we really truly know how our quote remote ancestors ate, you know, people talk about the paleo diet, um, you know, and they ate mostly X and Y. And now uh, here's, here's probably a close, and they, you know, people become very polemical about it. They become very strident about saying, I know this is how caveman or cavewoman actually ate. Actually, the truth is we don't really know how, uh, people in the Paleolithic era. We can assume that, you know, it was harder to find uh, 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 animal protein. Okay. Uh, we can assume that, that they uh, foraged and looked for nuts and berries and seeds and leaves and greens and stuff like that. <clears throat> but we don't really know. And we make a lot of assumptions, just like with metabolism, about how, how it must have been. But I think we're still trying to figure out exactly what people actually ate back then. I will tell you what people ate. Uh, and what is true, by the way, there's some surprises there too. You know, um, what, what I think is so fascinating, as we dig deeper into the remote recesses of history, pre before recorded history, we're actually finding in, in, in burial pits and in caves that there was not one type of human that lived, uh, uh, that walked the earth, but there were probably four, maybe even five different types of humans that walked around the earth at the exact same time. We were one of them. Our, our direct ancestors were one of them. But you know what? We, it's now believed that we, our ancestors, killed and ate, ever them, and ate the other humans. 
All right. So are you again, talking about like Homo sapiens, us versus yeah, they, Neanderthals, versus, and and and, right. and there and there are these little tiny, uh, tiny little humans that were like the little hobbits uh, that also walked around. They find them in 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 uh, cooking pits. Okay, they find their bones in cooking pits from our people, our kind, and they find knife marks and gar gar garbage, and they've been broken and sucked out. Look, I mean, so I think we're we don't you know we can't just assume that you know we were grain eaters you know when we were uh when when human human sapiens were by the way but there is a tr but you know probably there's some generalizations that are true and today you know what i will say is that we do live in an age of abundance hum homo sapiens we eat way too much all right and what we eat way too much of is tends to be ultra processed foods all right and so eating a lot of ultra processed foods that contain artificial chemicals artificial sweeteners artificial coloring all those things do actually affect our health defenses and also affect our metabolism that all work against our health. So back to this idea about, you know, like um, if let's 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 play with this idea that, you know, we had different dietary patterns in the remote past compared to today. You know, um, I would say true. We probably eat too many carbs in an age of abundance. Too many carbs will let you get stored as excess fat. Excess fat will slow down our metabolism. And gaining that extra fat causes inflammation, uh, disrupts our hormones uh, that, that fat produces, um, uh, 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 leads to a domino effect of other bodily processes. Shields go down, diseases set in, and we're just much more vulnerable today to the diseases of aging that we actually see. Go back way back when to, you know, Paleolithic era or, you know, people are eating, you know, I mean, I, I honestly don't know where, how often we would have been able to find abundant fat to eat. When we found it, we probably ate a lot of it um, yeah. uh, because where it was, would the fat around. come from actually back in the day? I, I would imagine animals that you hunt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So again, it's like car it's, it's carnivore. We probably didn't preferentially eat the fat and leave the 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 the, the muscle tissue behind. Probably ate everything, but the yeah. fat, you know, probably was was viewed as a source of nourishment uh, as well. But I can tell you that um, uh, probably wasn't that uh, easy uh, to find uh, that amount of fat. But I will. T the other thing is that I don't think necessarily humans were healthier. Uh, in the Paleolithic, I mean, forget about paleo, just go back, you know, 10,000 years, 5,000 years. I don't think humans were necessarily healthier because, you know, uh, uh, only 150 years ago, the average longevity of humans was like 50 years old, maybe less than 50 in their 40s. All right. Mm. So whatever it is that we're eating, you know, 100 years ago, all right, you're not living to 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, or now people are routinely living to 90 and into the late 90s routinely. So but is, I think that isn't go ahead. Start to interrupt, but uh, wasn't some of that like refuted based on that there was a high mortality uh, rate of babies, and that at the average actually made the entire lifespan of humans much lower because we didn't have antibiotics and science and technology as we do in our modern age versus them. So if most babies die as at one, that average lifespan becomes. A lot lower. I'm sure there's other that, factors. Well, I mean, that, that I mean that that, that 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 is also true. But you know, here's what's also true: most adults didn't live beyond the age of 40, 45. They died mm. of tuberculosis, of syphilis. They died of influenza. They died of the plague. You know, a third of Europe was wiped wiped out by by the bubonic plague. And so, yeah. the the fact of the matter is that we had no defenses. You know, where we were much weaker in our defenses overall. So. 
you know, it's a little bit of a heuristic uh, conversation, you know, like what, what position do you want to take? Was primitive man healthier? Do they eat a healthier diet? I will tell you, probably uh, we don't necessarily eat a healthier diet today. We can do much better. So operationally, you know, maybe looking back in the rear view mirror and thinking about like, what could we learn from the past is that eating less processed foods is definitely, definitely going to be healthier and taking advantage of, you know, modern medical care is going to allow us to live longer. So what I write about though is okay. And we've got more science and we got more technology. So based on using that, how do we take, you know, like just regular everyday living and move it to the, to, to how do we elevate things so we can get to that next level. And that's where being more knowledgeable about how the body works and what we can choose to eat to stimulate the body's health defenses to improve and augment our metabolism. That is actually how we get to that next mile. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Going back to the conversation around fat and excess fat, I think the other misconception people have is that all fat is bad, not just from mm -hmm. a consumption perspective of what they eat, but also you, I think you talk about brown fat a lot where there is a good type of fat. Can you differentiate from the brown fat versus some of the bad fat it has? And what is the function of brown fat and how can we get more of that? Yeah. Okay. So here's what's really interesting that, that, you know, when I went to medical school, uh, we weren't even taught this. I remember it, by the way, uh, uh, uh the, the class I was in when the first papers of human brown fat started to appear in the medical literature, I, I saw it cause I'm, I'm kind of like a research geek. And so I was reading about it. And then I asked the professor and they're like, ah, you know what? Nobody knows. That's, that's, that's like, uh, that may or may not be true. Well, now it's definitely true. Not all fat is created equal. Our body has at least three different kinds of fat. There's, they come in two main colors, brown and white. And just, you know, for your listeners, I'll describe it simply. Uh, white fat is wiggly, jiggly, lumpy, bumpy. It's the stuff that you can see in the mirror. White fat is what you're looking at when you step out of the shower and out of the corner of your eye, you see a little lump that you don't want to be on your body and you go, ah, I got to work out more or I got to eat a better diet. Okay. Um, it's also the, the, the lumpy bumpy stuff you find under your arm, under your chin. It's the muffin top that people don't want to have. It's on the thighs. It's in the butt. White fat is the kind of fat that you can see and that you probably want to streamline or reshape sculpt. All right. White fat is, there's another kind of white fat. It's the same white fat, but it's not, you can't see it. It's buried deep in your body. It's, it's white fat that's found in the tube of your body, and it is packed inside the, the tube of your body like a poster inside a poster tube, all right? And that kind of white fat is called visceral fat. Visceral means gut. So this is just fat that's like poured like peanuts, you know, packing peanuts into a Federal Express tube, okay? It's poured into your gut. It normally provides some padding, okay? But you can actually overgrow it. So this, So you can see you know, uh, fat under your arm, under your chin, or the muffin top, you can't see the visceral fat overgrowing, all right? So the visceral fat that overgrows in the tube of your body is very, very dangerous because that fat coalesces, congeals together, and it basically forms, it, it acts like a baseball glove that wraps around your organs and starts to choke your organs and becomes highly inflamed, all right? So by the way, you can be a very, very thin person, okay? And don't and you don't weigh so much, um, 
uh, uh, or you can be a big person, and you can have a lot of this visceral, dangerous visceral fat, inflammatory fat packed inside your body. All right, so body size doesn't uh, give it all away. You can be thin and also have deadly amounts of, of, of extra white fat. All right, so wiggly jiggly, lumpy bumpy, you can either see it or it's buried deep in your body, harmful stuff, or you want to body sculpt it, okay? Now that's one color of fat. The other kind of fat is, is, is brown, all right? And brown fat is not lumpy bumpy. In fact, it's wafer thin. It's like a piece of paper. And it's not under the, it's not, uh, uh, under the skin. You can't see it. In fact, it's close to the bone. So uh, uh, brown fat is like wallpaper plastered deep against the muscles of your neck, all right? Close to the bone. Uh, it's around your neck under your breastbone, a little bit under your arms, kind of like the girdle, like, like a bra, a little bit in your belly, all right? And they, and, and they do different things, okay? White fat is the fuel tank that stores the fuel that you eat from your food. It's like the, like the fuel tank of your car, all right? You need some of it because you need fuel. You have too much of it, you got a problem, all right? Like we talked about that already earlier. Um, uh, white fat also is an endocrine organ. It releases hormones, natural hormones that help your metabolism. Let me repeat that. Normal, healthy amounts of fat, white fat, release hormones, healthy hormones that help your body use energy. All right. So you want to have some amount of healthy uh, white fat. Um, uh, brown fat does something completely different. Brown fat is like a space heater. All right. You know, like the in a college dorm room, the space heater, it's a small little thing. You crank it up and you can take a freezing room and warm it up so you can do your homework. All right. So the thing about the brown fat is that there's a way of triggering brown fat to turn on. If you're in a really, really cold uh, environment, OK, you're outside, you're not wearing a jacket. OK, you'll shiver. Your muscles will shiver in order to create heat. But your brown fat will also turn on. And the way it turns on, it's like um, the range top of a gas stove, you know, like you're going to boil some water. And what do you do in a gas stove, right? You go up there, you turn a dial, click, 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 whoosh, the flame goes up. Now you can boil water, cook a can of soup, all right? So that's what brown fat does. It's basically stimulated. Cold temperature is one way to do it. Click, 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 whoosh. Now, that fuel that it takes to create that flame on the stovetop comes from the gas in your house, okay? Gas from the street. The, the fuel from brown fat, when it goes whoosh to cold temperatures, it draws that fuel from your harmful white fat. So brown fat, when it is ignited, will burn down the extra energy and the fuel tanks of your harmful white fat. Good fat, brown fat will fight harmful fat, white fat, if it's excessive. Now, cold temperatures will do it. So you, you've heard about cold plunges, you know, things like that. Like that's what people are doing, cold immersion. That's one way of activating brown fat. And by the way, you know how we discovered brown fat? It's an interesting piece of history. In the, in the 17th century, there was a, um, uh, a naturalist, you know, these people that go study nature in Europe. Um, Con his name is Conrad Gessner. And he was collecting animals in the mountains of, of Central Europe. And he collected this thing called a uh, marmot. Kind of looks like a groundhog, a squirrel, hibernates. And you know what, back then, you know, you could do stuff you don't need to do anymore because we can scan the animals. But back then they would dissect the animals in the lab and look for what's inside it. And what they found in the marmot when it was hibernating was this little brown thing that was between its shoulder blades and he couldn't define it. He didn't know what it was for. All right. 
Um, uh, but he knew it was in every single hibernating animal. And later on, they also found um, lots of things that hibernating bats and squirrels and, you know, other animals all had this brownish little thing. Okay. They, they thought it was a, 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 a kind of, they called, they called it a hibernoma because it was all found in hibernating uh, animals. It wasn't until the early 1900s where we started to have the microscopes, the scientific cataloging of what the tissues look like that somebody at UCLA, a researcher there, looked at this mound of brown stuff in an animal and said, you know what, that's actually fat. And the reason it's brown that we know is because the, this kind of fat has a lot of a little tiny organelle. It's kind of like a nuclear powered battery inside the cell called a mitochondria. Now, when I was in med school, we had to memorize everything. I used to call it mitochondria, 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 because this little tiny organelle in a cell uh, actually ignites and creates energy. That's how brown fat actually works. It's got lots of these little batteries, nuclear batteries packed in it. And guess what? Mitochondria are packed with iron. Iron, if you like, like a nail, if you leave it outside, it's going to oxidize and it'll rust. And what is a rusty nail? What color is it? Brown. So the reason brown fat is brown is because it's got a lot of mitochondria. It's got a lot of iron that's oxidized. And that's why brown fat is brown. And it's got filled with these nuclear batteries that can, that can actually fire up and draw down fuel from your fat, other kind of fat fuel tanks. So this is really becoming, like this is all healthy fat, by the way. I haven't talked about mm. extra fat at all. So, you know, somebody who doesn't overtly have, carry around a lot of extra weight, you got brown fat. I got brown fat. Everyone's got brown fat, and it wasn't. Uh, and it wasn't until we developed scanning technology that could actually show uh, the metabolism firing up with brown fat. This was uh, probably you know twenty years ago. We started to uh, actually a little bit, a little bit more than 10, 10 years ago. We started to figure out how to use the technology to find it. That's how we know. And in my book, I published pictures. I got permission from the researchers that actually did the first work to show exactly where the brown fat is. So if you're curious huh. of seeing brown fat on a picture of a human, uh, like a like a, a scanning of a human, you can actually take a look at my book. I got special permission to show. I think it's really cool. I That's didn't cool. even know the, the, the where it was actually displayed. So cold temperatures will activate your brown fat, but so will eating certain foods. Mm. Yes, let's talk about those foods. Uh, this is a cliffhanger now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So first, before we go into the foods, I want to actually tell you one more thing about metabolism that I think people will find really interesting. And it makes a lot of sense. And it connects to, you know, this fad that we hear about with intermittent fasting, right, which everyone's heard of one way or another. It's hard to ignore uh, uh, intermittent fasting. And it's actually important. So here's basically how our metabolism works. And again, uh, I, I'm trying to demystify and try to make something complicated as simple as possible for people to relate to. So our metabolism uh, fires up whenever we're actually um, eating food, like it knows what to do. It's hardwired. So part of our program, our operating system, you, pay, you see a piece of food, you put it in your mouth. What is your body's natural reaction? Well, you have an organ called your pancreas, which actually is, uh, creates hormones. One of the hormones it creates is insulin. Now, most people have heard of insulin. Insulin is actually made uh, by your pancreas whenever there's food because insulin draws the energy from the food you ate into your cell, right? So basically what happens is that when you've got good insulin, you've got good energy. Now, if you don't actually have 
enough insulin, okay, that that's like what happens in type one diabetes. Man, like you you don't you can't draw your energy in. You're always weak. You need to get injections of insulin to be able to draw that energy in. But normal normally insulin works just fine, and you draw the energy uh, into the body, uh, uh, and then anything extra uh, uh, that you don't need immediately. Uh, your body, your metabolism will store while you're eat, while you're eating, will store it into your fuel tanks. What are your fuel tanks? Fat, fat cells, adipocytes. All right. So you eat a meal and you don't overeat and you're basically going to get all the energy you need. Fuel tanks, your body's fuel tanks is empty. You're going to eat something. Oh, I feel better now. I've got some food, right? That's how we, how we feel. Anything extra from that meal is going to get stored into the fat. Now, when you have food and your insulin is up, your body focuses on storing that fuel. Give me some. Let me let me let me store it away. When you don't eat, your insulin goes down. And when your insulin goes down, your metabolism switches gears and says, "All right, we're not storing anymore. Now we're burning." So when we're not eating, our metabolism is, is able to burn fuel. That's actually how we manage extra body fat. Burning fuel. Now the fuel that's burned is not only going to be from your last meal, it's also going to be from the meal before. It's going to be from the weekend. It might be from the holidays. So you can kind of see if you repeatedly overeat, you're just going to have a ton. You're going to be like a fuel powerhouse in your body, meaning your fat cells are going to be stocked with a lot of fuel. It's going to take a long time to burn that down. Now, when you're not eating, you're it's something called fasting, right? That's basically the definition of fasting. When are we not eating naturally? We're not eating when we're sleeping. So when we're sleeping, we're actually fasting. In fact, when we wake up in the morning, the first meal we have is breakfast, break fast, all right? And so here's what happens. Remember I told you, when you're not eating, your insulin's low. When your insulin's low, your metabolism switches gear to burning fat. So our body will do the work of burning extra fat from our fuel tanks while we're sleeping. And the longer we're actually able to not eat, the more, the longer we fast, the more fuel we're actually going to burn. This is why intermittent fasting actually works. But intermittent fasting isn't just a like a robotic program you got to follow. We do it every single day when we sleep. All right. So here's one thing that people need to know. If you want to know how to optimize your metabolism and make the, your body do the work for you, first try to get eight, eight hours of sleep. So I'm going to give you an example. Let's say sleeping eight hours is like going to bed at 11, waking up at seven. That's eight hours. Okay. Now, that's going to burn down some fat if you uh, fuel if you don't actually overeat it's going to burn it down normally okay most people overeat because we live in an age of abundance but here's one way to actually burn a little bit more so you can up your metabolism okay and so and this is something a lot of people don't do let's say that you eat dinner at seven o'clock the night before and you're done with dinner like at eight o'clock and you put your dishes away at eight o'clock now if you like this is what i do when I put my dishes away, I'm done eating. I'm not going to eat again until the next day. I'm putting the dishes away. No more dishes, no more food. I don't snack, no midnight snacking, no noshing. I don't put a bowl of something in front of me while I'm watching TV. All right. And so let's say you, you put your dishes away at eight o'clock, go to bed at 11, three hours, three hours of fat burning. Okay. Um, uh, uh, time. Let's do the math. Add it on to the eight hours of sleeping. Three plus eight is 11 hours. And then when I get up in the morning, by the way, I don't do what my mom taught me to do when I was a kid. I, mean, I don't know if your mom did this, but hurry up and get up, eat breakfast, get on the school bus, get to school so you're not late. All right. 
most of us uh, grew up that pattern. So when, as adults, we still instinctively feel that when we get up, we got to go eat some breakfast right away, no matter where we are. Actually, that's not true. We don't need to eat right away and nor do we need to eat a lot. Okay. As adults, here's what I do. I get up in the morning. I take myself, I take my time getting ready, take a shower, I get dressed. I might go for a walk. I might go check my email. I might go read the paper or catch up on the news. I usually wait about an hour before I eat anything after I put the time I get up. Now let's figure this out. If I put my dishes away at eight, I go to bed at 11. I got three hours at eight hours, three plus eight is 11. And now I get an extra hour. That brings, that brings me to 12 hours of fat burning, fuel burning time that my body is doing all by itself without having to work out, without ever going to diet, not doing anything intense. Okay. Just by being mindful of like, sort of like when I'm eating and, and, and also not overeating. So how I'm eating. So this, I'm setting the stage for this because a lot of people snack at night and a lot of people still stick with that pattern of actually eating um, a lot of a big breakfast when they get up because they were told that that was the most important meal of the day. And they eat a lot of fatty things uh, in the breakfast. They drink a lot of juice added with a lot of added sugars. And a lot of people don't get good quality sleep, right? So they're sleeping only five hours or four hours or staying up late. All these factors, again, we talked about this at the very beginning, Sean. It was like all these factors conspire to actually derail your metabolism. So having said all that, it's possible to just sort of do a little tweaking of your life to figure out how to actually get your body to do a lot of its work by itself and don't overeat. Then we go like when you're eating, how do you actually burn down extra fuel? Like what's the, how do you get a little more juice out of this? Okay. Yeah. One more one thing, Dr. William, yeah. um, we, we talked about intermittent fasting. Well, would 12 hours count as intermittent fasting from, from what I've seen and, mm. and heard about, uh, I watched like this, uh, YouTube guy, Dr. Eric Berg, and he talks about well, like the importance of having like 14 hours as a minimum to get the, you know, the doses of what intermittent fasting provides. What are your thoughts on these? Right. Okay. So the classic protocol of intermittent fasting is 16, eight, 16 hours of fasting, eight hours of eating. Those are your windows that you would fast or eat. And, um, and this is published research, you know, people practice according to that. And you know what, it's doable and you're gonna lose weight if you do that because you're not eating for 18 hours, your metabolism is gonna be burning down that fuel for 18 hours and you put all your eating into eight hours. Um, the, the, so it does work. There's a, big, there's a problem with intermittent fasting that way, the 16 protocol is that for most people, it's a little, it's kind of difficult to actually fit in you know, to feeding in eating to eight hours, like it just doesn't quite work in human society and most people's busy lives. All right. If you're hardcore and you want to like go for it and you can do it, go for it. But for most people, it's not practical to, to live for a long time that way. And for me, if you want to do something that is good for you in a sustainable way, that's actually the best, something that you can kind of get behind and move. So it turns out that fasting for 12 hours, like I just described, um, isn't hard to do. Most people can do what I just said. Okay. Don't eat breakfast uh, for an hour after you get up. Don't eat anything after you um, put the dishes away. That's simple, easy guidelines. Um, and you can fit it into most everyone's schedule. Uh, so it's more doable than, than eating for only eight hours and fasting for 16. The other thing is that you're able to keep it up for a longer period of time. All right. So you can actually, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. I, I do do that that way every day. Like, like, 
week week after week. That's how I live my life. I don't think I could actually keep up 16 and eight for a long period of time. What happens when you fall off the wagon, like any extreme diet, what do you start to do? You start to like go crazy and kind of go to the other extreme. And so that is one of the reasons why extreme dieting of any sort, whether it's intermittent fasting or not, uh, basically causes rebound. All right. Now, here's the deal with um, the the uh, what I told you, 12 and 12 and 16 and 8. This has been studied in a lab and it's been studied in humans. If you fast for 12 hours, like I said, you'll actually lose weight. You'll burn fuel. You'll shrink your waist circumference. It works. If, you, if you're able to muscle it and go for 16 hours, guess what? It's going to be a little bit better for you. Probably about 20% better. You're going to lose a little more weight. You're going to, your waist circumference shrink a little bit better. Okay. Your, whatever energetics you're tweaking are going to be a little bit better, but you might not be able to maintain it. All right. So 12 and 12 work, 16 and eight work a little bit better. Now, here's, here's something that I think I found so fascinating as a researcher. Okay. And as a, and as a, a communicator in the, in kind of the food and health space, you know where that 16 and eight came from? Any idea? Like, like whoever came up with 16 and eight, like why, why not 17 and, you know. Yeah, it's a good uh, question. Six, yeah. Right? I have no idea. 17 to seven. Okay. Turns out 16 and eight came from an animal research study involving mice. All right. And it was a graduate student that a postdoc that was actually doing the research where I, I believe it was a she had to actually uh, keep the mice from eating for 16 hours and then had to feed them for eight hours. This is like 24 hours a day doing a research mm. study. And then basically at, when, when it's fasting time, I had to pick out all the food, make sure the mice weren't hiding food in the cheeks of the mice, you know, kind of like I'd poke the mice to make sure they're not storing anything away, pick out all the food out of the cage. All right. It's backbreaking work. This individual had a significant other who didn't like her in the lab the whole time. So they had a deal. If you're going to do this experiment, you're only going to be able to be uh, uh, in that lab feeding them for eight hours. Then you're coming home and we're going to have a social life. That's actually how the 16 and eight got developed. It was an artifact of a relationship deal. And it kind of matches the eight hour workday that most people have. Exactly. To four. Yeah. Exactly. Right. You want to have work life balance. And yet that now has propagated into this sort of like this, um, this mantra if it ain't 16, it ain't going to work. You don't mm-hmm. have enough of, and, and this is really why, you know, I, I find it so important to be able to give people the sense that, you know, the intermittent fasting works. You want to do 16 and eight. There's a reason why it's 16 and eight, and it does work really well, but it's not necessarily reasonable to do. And if you do 12 and 12, it also works. Right. It doesn't work quite white, as well, saying. but mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. But you can actually maintain it. And to me, being able to maintain something over the long haul is going to serve you better. Yeah. And that's, that's a great point that people should make. Cause I think people think like, Oh, I didn't do exactly 16 hours. I didn't, you know, people use apps these days, right? So there's a countdown, you know what? And when someone doesn't hit their goal, they decide that everything that they've done before and, and in the future actions that they're going to do are irrelevant. So it's this like black and white goal people have, but they don't, I guess people, need to understand that. And I'm the same way. Um, before we go into the foods that increase metab- that brown fat, what about autophagy? Is that a black and white circumstance when it comes to fasting where you need to fast a certain amount to hit autophagy? And maybe we can explain what, what autophagy means when it comes to, to fasting in, in our body. Yeah. Okay. 
let first of all, so I'm a scientist. So like this is like my wheelhouse. So yeah, let's just yeah. break down. Let's just break down this this phrase or this word autophagy. First, how do you spell it? It's a u t o, like auto. Phagy, p h a g y, and you know, and and auto means self, and phagy means eat, and so autophagy is really just a natural what our bodies naturally do to renew ourselves. Uh, our immune cells will eat up the dead and dying debris of our older selves. I mean, like, look, we're forty million. We're made of forty million cells. We have to reproduce those cells, and some of the old cells get you know kind of get worn out, and then they break down. Got to clean it all up. All right. And if you have a lot of old and worn up cells hanging around, not good. Like that kind of builds up and you, you just have a weaker physiology, your whole system is weaker. So the idea of autophagy is not new. It's not a biohacking kind of like a, a solution. It's what our body naturally does. And yes, it is true that when you're actually fasting, your body is able to um, switch to cleanup mode. Right, so it's actually burning fuel. It's also cleaning up. Autophagy is just something it it does all the time. It does a little bit more when you're actually sleeping and not eating. Um, I mean, sleeping is really the best time uh, for autophagy to actually work. It's part of that renewal system when you get a good night's sleep. Oh, I feel much better in the morning, man. I'm glad I got a great night's sleep. You feel better overall because the toxins got drained from your brain. Your gut health recharged. Your immune system got rebuilt. You know, your metabolism burned off some fuel. And some of those dead and dying cells got cleared out by autophagy. That's what it actually is. There is no trigger. There's no switch that says, if you don't do this, you won't have autophagy. We can't stop autophagy, actually. All right. Uh, uh, and so this, I, I sort of think this is a, a very real process in the body that we need to keep us alive. But there's no magic hack we can do to make more autophagy happen like a toggle switch. Oh, interesting. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily matter how much you fast. Are you saying that as we're not eating, autophagy is happening automatically, and mm -hmm. and it just happens more when we're not eating? So technically, the longer we fast, the more autophagy we're allowing our body to happen. It's not something that triggers on and off. Uh, you know what? It actually there it, it will it will actually enhance the amount the longer you the more you fast it will actually enhance uh, autophagy. I mean, like, look, if you were thrown onto a desert island, okay, with no food, uh, you know, you you would actually uh, be fasting. Okay, fasting and starvation are a continuum, so I want to make that clear as well. You know, you can go from fasting and don't eat for sixteen hours. You can also don't eat for four days, and you'll go suddenly kick into starvation mode. And not only will your muscles start to break down, your fat will also break down. Your muscles will break down, and you know the autophagy, which normally happens, will get enhanced, and so you'll break down your tissues even more. Which is why people that are in, you know, like a like a prison camp, for example, they really, really whittle down. Um, there's a lot of autophagy going on. So autophagy is a natural process. Um, it's, a, it's part of our natural renewal. And yeah, when we're not eating, it actually amps itself up. The volume switch gets turned up a little bit louder, but it's not like fasting clicks on the switch. And if you start eating, like it clicks it off again. Hmm. On this idea of um, longevity, autophagy is obviously hmm. people that are talking about longevity. Are there any research or you know, based on patterns that people have seen for blue zones, blue zones, meaning countries that have the highest lifespan of humans in a, like a concentrated place. 
are there any patterns that you've seen based on their eating habits, their, their lifestyle that can scientifically, I guess, um, suggest that they've, that's the reason why they're able to live longer than most other places. Yeah. The, 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 the pioneering journalist who discovered the blue zones and coined them the blue zones, Dan Butner, as a friend of mine, and he and I've had conversations oh. about this, uh, about what are those patterns you see in, you know, they, they say there's five blue zones that have been discovered. There's probably many blue zones, many more blue zones out there. We just haven't studied them enough to know where all of them actually are. But, you know, what are the common um, uh, characteristics of their lifestyle? Number one, they have tightly knit social communities. Um, they're not a bunch of nomads and loners that are all going off trying to, you know, um, do startup companies and exit, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like they're, 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 yeah. they're people that kind of hang out together and, and, uh, and, and work together as a community. Um, so, so social bond is really important. They tend to eat um, whole fresh foods in cooked in uh, prepared in traditional ways. So they don't eat a lot of processed box, colorful, you know, um, uh, stuff that, uh, that that is advertised in a television. Um, they they tend to eat things that are seasonal and they're grown around their community. Um, and and they're and they're very mindful about the. They're proud of their food. They care for their food. They eat um, uh, as part of their tradition and as part of their community. Uh, they they are, they're mindful about their food. You know how how in like we tend to live in cities. Um, you know that the typical places that that modern society lives. We eat for sustenance. We just kind of get some energy in ours. We you know you, you bolt your food down in ten minutes. You're checking out your phone at the same time, and then you rush rush off. And like, and if, and if you happen to eat with somebody else, you know, if you happen to eat with somebody else, what are you talking about? You're talking about your work. You're talking about stress. You're talking about something going on, you know, in these blue zones, you know, when you sit together, they, first of all, they have longer meals, their families and friends sit together. They could even cook together. So this communal aspect. They're very mindful about their food. And you know what they talk about? They talk about their food, man, this is so delicious. Wow. You know, where, where did you get that great? beans or my mom used to cook it this way how did your mom used to cook it that's actually the conversation i used to by the way i did a gap year before i went to medical school i lived in italy and i lived in greece when mm. i was the guest in the families of traditional italians and greeks in the mediterranean all right and we sat down communally with family and friends and we ate our food they enjoyed their food and they talked about their food that's the center of the conversation during their meal you talk about mindful eating you know they 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 live to eat they don't eat to live. Right. Are there two blue zones there? Like one in Italy, like Sardinia and, and another one in Greece? Uh, well, so, so yeah, exactly. So um, there's a there's a mountain town in Sardinia. That's one of the blue zones. And there's an island, Icaria, in Greece uh, that is actually a blue zone. And the other ones are, I think, uh, uh, the, the, there's a, the, the, the village of Nicoya in Costa Rica. Uh, there's the uh, Seventh Adventist uh, uh, community in, in Santa Barbara, and then in um, in Japan, and uh, Okinawa. I think there's a there's a community uh, out there as well. But again, these are community people who eat local fresh food very mindfully. Uh, they support each other. They have lower levels of stress, and they're physically active. They walk wherever they go. You know, they don't sit in a car. You know, or or and and. Uh, zip around. And so they're actively engaged in their uh, lifestyle. 
Um, I believe that those are just generally the principles of eating a healthier life. Now, what they do eat actually is also healthier. They eat a more balanced meal that actually has dietary fiber and mm-hmm. foods, plant-based foods with polyphenols that activate our health defenses and actually activate our metabolism, including our brown fat. Interesting. Yeah, I think the Japanese also have the, the term molai, which is like a community of people just to describe how important it is for them in, in that community. Um, really, really fascinating. So uh, before we close off here, Dr. William, I want to really, first of all, appreciate, thank, thank, share, share my appreciation for, for coming on and sharing all this knowledge. I want to make sure people check out the book, Eat to Beat Diet, and obviously the Eat to Beat Disease, which was your previous book in 2018. And um, I think everybody should check that out. So we'll, we're going to have that link below. And before we, we close off, I, I want to share the um, with the audience. Um, I hate this word, like hacks, basically, of, of, of mm-hmm. things that have helped people. And I want to focus on something that can be sustainable and something that's easy, which I think are important for habit building. So for example, one, one of the things that I've done when I've been trying to drink more water is I was very lightheaded and I was just forgetting to drink a lot of water is that I would just, I, would, I bought this one liter jug and in my mind versus drinking out of something like this, which this is coffee, I felt it was like a tricking of my brain to drink more water because when humans see something that's not finished, they tend to continue to complete it. Right. Whereas before I was just drinking this much water and then I was done and then I would forget about it. So having that, one little slight difference really met, went a long way for me to drink water. And now I don't even think about it. Um, what are some things that maybe you've implemented it on yourself or clients that you've had that are something that's simple, like easier to do and something that's sustainable that can allow them to live healthier, longer, happier? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll sort of um, uh, uh, tell you that um, uh, some of the foods and beverages that I write about in my book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, is there's 150 of them that have all been proven with human research that they can actually activate your metabolism. And most of them also activate your health defenses. They're all protective foods. They all come from traditional, they're found in the traditional recipes of the, of, of, uh, uh, the diet of the Mediterranean part of the world as well as in Asia. So I call it Mediterranean as kind of an approach to eating that I have. So when I want to actually think about what I want to eat, right? What do I, what, what am I going to cook? Well, if I'm at a restaurant, like what dishes do I, what do I want to order from the menu? I automatically gravitate towards like, I always think, oh, I don't know what I find in the Mediterranean or what might I find in Asia? Those, those are sort of my divining rods of which direction or which selection I want to have. Yeah. That's an easy way for me to um, uh, kind of sort through a myriad of actually choices. So that's one little hack that I do that usually will result in me having good, healthy foods. Um, now, again, I have 150 of them uh, that are out there in my book uh, to, to read about. But there are some foods that I actually also, by way of habit, make sure that I'm getting the polyphenols or the dietary fibers that I need to have to, to keep my metabolism healthy every single day. Um, you just picked up a cup of one of them, coffee. It turns out mm. coffee actually slows down cellular aging. Earlier, we talked about um, longevity. And, you know, there's a life fuse at the end of our DNA called a telomere, and it burns down like the wick of a candle. Okay. And when, you're, when your telomeres are super short, your cells age and they die, and then they've got to be cleaned up with autophagy. All right. And so what we want, the name of the game 
really to live longer and better is to really to slow down the burn of your wick in your life. I call it the life fuse. Coffee has been shown in humans to actually slow down cellular aging. So coffee makes it possible for you to stay youthful longer at the cellular level. Now, here's the thing. It's the polyphenols in the coffee that actually do it. All right. What are the polyphenols? Well, one of, we've been, I, I study food as medicine, so we actually know this. One of them is called chlorogenic acid. All right. Now, so, well, how, how should you have your coffee? Should you get it pumpkin flavored with froth and whipped cream in the top? No. And the reason is because when you actually put cow dairy in your coffee, dairy is fat, right? So it's milk fat. And what fat does is it forms little tiny soap bubbles in liquid. Okay. It's not soap like you can wash your hands, but they're, it's just chemically when you put fat, if you ever like put butter in a, in a cup of water, it'll actually separate or oil in, in water. It'll separate and start to associate in different ways. They form little tiny soap bubbles. And what happens when you put dairy into a cup of coffee, and this is just a little thing to remember, um, the, the dairy soap bubble will trap the chlorogenic acid, all right, the bioactive that actually helps your cells age more slowly and activate your metabolism. And so when you drink your coffee, the bubble protected uh, chlorogenic acid will go right down through your stomach and roll down beyond where you're going to absorb it. So you'll absorb some polyphenol, but you won't absorb as much. You'll probably lose at least 30% of it if you have coffee with cream or milk or half and half. So much better to have coffee black like the Italians do, by the way, or the Greeks or the Mediterraneans. So coffee is a, but if let's say you don't like coffee, tea is actually also really good. Now, traditionally people used to say, oh, you got to drink green tea, but it turns out Matcha is really good, which is a kind of green tea. Regular green tea is good. Chinese or Japanese green tea is all, all really good. But people used to say black tea, ah, it's oxidized, doesn't have any of the polyphenols. Wrong. Turns out black tea also has polyphenols and it's been studied in humans and in the lab that black tea also has many metabolism benefits and immune and stem cell benefits that help you regenerate your tissues from the inside out. That's black tea. And then if you want to go way to the other extreme of tea, there's something, there's a kind of Chinese tea called pu'er tea, spelled P-U apostrophe E-R-H. It's a digestive, smoky, really, really dark fermented tea. Um, in Asia, they drink a pu'er tea after a meal um, because it actually helps to cut grease and fat. And it's a, just a nice end of the meal. You don't have a lot of it, a little bit. It's a probiotic tea. The fermentation of that tea has its own healthy gut bacteria that you can actually drink. Also good for your health. So it's not, so tea is good. Again, yeah. don't put dairy in it because the dairy will create those little soap bubbles and you won't absorb the polyphenols. Coffee and tea are things that I drink all day, every single day. Just in to addition on to that water, point, um, mm. matcha powder is something I've been testing out. And instead of drinking it with tea, I just put it in my like morning smoothie that I put in with oh, protein yeah. powder and all that stuff. Is that yeah. okay as well? Is that just as effective ab as, as drinking ab tea? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you know, a lot of people don't know what matcha is other than it's a green powder. Um, matcha tea is basically tea leaves. Now, you know, tea leaves would be in a tea bag that you dunk. All right. They're in a, you see the leaves in a bag or sometimes in Asia, they put uh, a free floating tea leaves, oh, loose tea leaves in a, in a cup. All right. Matcha is regular tea that 28 days before it's picked, they put a, a shade over it. So protected from sunshine. And those 28 days of growing in the shade 
force the tea plant to create even more antioxidants, more polyphenols. So matcha tea leaves are loaded, much more packed with potent polyphenols because they've been shaded. Now they pick the tea, they cut the stem out, and then they take the entire leaf and turn it into powder. All right. So regular tea in a bag or even loose leaf tea, you're not eating the tea leaves. Matcha tea, you are actually consuming the entire tea leaf that's been powdered. So that's why, and it already has more polyphenols. So you get a lot more out of it. It doesn't matter if you put it in hot water or cold water or a smoothie or plain water. Only if you are following the ceremonial tradition of matcha, you know, with the, right. with the, with the whisk. But yeah, you could put it into any liquid and you will get all those matcha tea polyphenols. Interesting. It's actually better from an antioxidant perspective to drink with matcha powder versus green tea and coffee from an antioxidant perspective. It's actually more powerful. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause you get more, you get more, you got more poly polyphenols in there that contribute right. to the antioxidant effects. Interesting. Interesting. Um, cool. Well, any other, any other things? I think you were mentioning one thing before I cut you off there. Oh, well, so, you know, I, I was just going to say, we talked about, you know, how I, how and when I eat, you know, sort of during the day. Another thing that I think is a little life hack, um, you know, like, like not waiting an hour before I eat in the breakfast in the morning, putting the dishes away, not eating, <clears throat> trying to get my eight hours of sleep to clear the toxins out of my brain and get my metabolism switched on the coffee and the tea, the water. I think it's a really good point. You know, the other thing that I think is just a really helpful, it's not really a hack. It's just sort of a <clears throat> good rule of thumb for health is when I eat, even when there's stuff that I absolutely love, I'm very mindful of the fact that I want to eat for pleasure and I want to study, I want to stop eating when I feel satisfied, not when I feel full. There's a difference. Feeling full is when you feel your stomach is pooching out and distended. All right. When you filled up the water balloon. Okay. And now you got to tie it. That's full. Feeling satisfied is like, you know, it's a mouth feel, it's a mouth taste. It's feeling satisfied is as much in your brain as it is in the size of your stomach, the distension of your stomach. And the reason that's important is that, you know, there's an old Japanese saying that came from a Confucian saying called uh, harahachi banmi. And that statement is really saying, hey, stop eating when you're 80% full. That's a good rule of thumb. What I try to do as well is when you stop eating before you're full, 80% of the way. So the why I say is that I like to eat, I like to only eat things that give me joy and pleasure. All right. I'll skip a meal actually, if I don't have anything that I really enjoy. Why do I, why, how dare I do that? Well, you know what? My body will actually switch into fuel burning mode. If I, if I do that, when I eat, I want to get pleasure. I want to get joy. I want to feel joy. All right. And so when I'm eating, I pay attention to how my whole body feels, my brain, my senses. I'm very, uh, I, I light my, I take the time to really pay attention to how my body feels. By the way, that there's a term for that's called interoception. Interoception is actually connecting your mind to your body to pay attention to how you're feeling. When I'm satisfied, I know I'm satisfied before I'm full. Usually by the time I'm full, I've stuffed my gills and everyone's done this at a Thanksgiving meal, you know, or a family holiday where, you know, you're eating, you're with your friends and all that delicious food, you go back for seconds. And all you do is take one more bite and you're like, oh man, I wish I didn't take that whole second plate, but now sure. you took it. Now you got to finish it. And then you feel like crap afterwards. So this is why I, I tell people, this is the real hack. Quit the clean plate club. 
whatever mm. you're taught by, you know, the lunch lady at school or your mom, you do not have to clean your plate. Don't take so much on the plate. Eat to your 80% when you're satisfied, but not full. And don't go back for seconds. That's yeah, that's the easiest way to kind of like, yeah. Great advice. And it does align with, I don't know how scientifically cure, uh, accurate this numerical is, but um, maybe you can correct me on this, but it takes something like 20 minutes for your brain to realize that you're full. So if you're yeah. eating and it does align with what you're saying about the people that live the longest generally like to take their time when it comes to eating, because for people that are going to eat really fast, their brain hasn't caught up to the fact that they're completely full, that their body is physically full versus people that are slow eaters that take an hour versus 20 minutes to eat. Maybe by their, you know, 30 minutes are, are gone. The, the brain already realizes they're already full. Um, so it, I don't know if that's scientifically true or not, though. Is, is yeah, that no, like it's, at, it's, at, it's, at, it's okay. about roughly 20 minutes. I mean, it depends on what you're eating as well and what you ate the meal before. But yeah, it's about the right time. So, you know, look, people that wolf their entire tray down in 10 minutes, that is a setup for mm. overeating that overloads your fuel tank, that then starts to build body fat, slow your metabolism and trigger inflammation and all those downhill things that we talked about earlier. Amazing. Well, Dr. William Lee, thank you so much for all the insights. Make sure you guys check out Eat to Beat Disease, Eat to Beat Diet as well. Both of those books will have those links down below. Once again, thank you so much. Thank you.